had this thirst of understanding, figuring out what it is in the printing business that's justified as a $70 billion industry. In order to pay a dollar to someone to manage those thefts, I realized that if I can pay a rupee, there's a big, big advantage has essentially proven out that the concept works. We've had explosive growth in a very short period of time. My name is Tarang Vasalia. I, uh, I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Optimark. Basically, for background, I went to Babson College for undergrad, focused on entrepreneurship. It's always been something that I've been interested and passionate about. I've always been interested in seeing where businesses can grow and uh, kind of take themselves into the next steps. And I've been uh, fortunate to experience that with this business. I started the company about two years after I graduated from undergrad. So in 2011, I set, you know, essentially started the business. And what Optimark is, is it's a traditional print and promotional products company. And so obviously there's a lot of competition out in the space. And so with that, you know, how, how would I be unique to position myself in, in the industry? So what I did was, as I told you, I'm, I'm actually in India and our operations there. So in, in 2011, I actually opened up an office in India where we are having a, a full team of technical guys, order management people. And slowly but surely we started, of course, organically growing it. And then they're supporting our sales reps in the US. So in print, there's two sides of the business in print and in promotional products in that there's direct manufacturing as well as, you know, essentially being a broker. And so we, we kind of had a hybrid approach. So we started with one manufacturing facility, uh, which had been already operating, which I was fortunate to get support from my parents that they had started earlier. So they defranchised that in 2011. And then I kind of rebranded the company and had this, you know, smaller brick and mortar mom and pops manufacturing shop. And I wanted to complement that with the brokerage business. So we went out, started selling, knocking on doors and drumming up some accounts to get uh, kind of business going. And again, we're servicing businesses that need promotional products, any sort of print collateral. And from there, we started growing and growing. And uh, then we started creating these online storefronts where companies can essentially go to a one-stop shop and order any and all of their promotional products or print in our custom branded storefront technology. And our kind of value uh, compared to the other guys that are out there is that we don't charge anything for those systems. So if you're a real estate company that needs to order direct mail or let's say print or anything like that, you can go on our system. It'll be all custom branded towards your company and you'll be able to order it with a few clicks of a button. And so that's a little bit about Optimore. You, how many locations do you have? So right now we have a location in, in Boston, Massachusetts. We have another one in Stanford, Connecticut, another one in Plano, Texas. We just opened up a location in Arizona. And then our sales office is actually based in New York City. And then, of course, our back office, which is the you know, where the majority of our staff is, where we have over 40 people working uh, in, in our uh, team overseas in India. Where are you originally from? Can you talk about your background? Like I said, I know you briefly talked about college and how were you able to open these different locations? Good question. So my parents, they essentially were born and raised in India. Uh, they immigrated here. They came, they started this business, which was that brick and mortar shop that we have in Boston. And then from there, obviously, once they came here, I was you know, first generation born in the U.S. So I've been born and brought up in the U.S., specifically in Massachusetts. So I grew up in Massachusetts. And then from there, you know, I've, I'd always wanted to go to a school heavily focused on entrepreneurship. So Babson really kind of was a, a great 
a great place to go to really kind of understand what my options were and get a good taste and spread of different types of aspects of business, whether it be accounting, marketing, sales, you name it. So I was able to get a taste of the full gamut. And then from there, post, uh, you know, post college, instead of working a corporate gig, which is not something that's really been of interest to me, I took upon seeing where there's challenges with, with the traditional, you know, services business. And then seeing where I can now take that into uh, more of a technology type play. So you fast forward, both in the last two consecutive years, we've been on the Inc. 500 of one of the fastest growing companies in the US. And printing, I'm sure you know, is a dying industry, right? So there's a lot of things that are changing. And so we've been adapting that through the use of technology. We're really excited that this year we have a sister company that we've rolled out that's going to be specifically focused on resellers and them being able to have a one-stop shop to resell any and all print and promotional products. And so that's called anythingwithink.com. So we're launching that in September. And meanwhile, our traditional business is continuing to grow organically. Yeah, that's that's that. Well, you're, you're talking about coming out of college. I mean, when I was kind of looking at the background, were you a part of a few franchises before you started doing this? Or at least I see one with Red Mango, maybe Great Clips? Correct. Just like franchises, the experience I got in franchising was traditionally from print. My parents were operating what, what at the time was called Sir Speedy Printing. So as a printing franchise, I was always interested in franchising just because it was something they were doing and it seemed like it was working well. So I started doing that right out of college. I opened up the first Red Mango location in the in Massachusetts, quickly realized that these businesses are, you know, it's difficult, you know, a retail uh, a franchise versus a services business franchise. It's all up to how much you're going to work. And, you know, there's a lot of variables that affect. So I started franchising, seeing what I liked about it, seeing what I did not like about it. As an entrepreneur, I don't like being told what to do. I like to break the rules a lot. And so uh, I wasn't satisfied fully in just like following a, a just a set process. And even with that set process, I knew that there was limitations in terms of my ability to scale. And naturally, a lot of the lessons I learned right from the get-go in franchising is, you know, you got to be really careful in terms of your cost of goods sold. There's a lot of variables you need to make sure you're taking into account. And, you know, I just didn't like the fact that I'm getting limited to my ability to go out and capture the market under my own terms. And so while those franchises were running, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't getting that thirst of entrepreneurship I was looking for. And obviously, my parents were operating a traditional services brick-and-mortar print shop. So I wasn't interested in making color copies either. So that's where the technology play came. That's where we started outsourcing stuff overseas and seeing where we could reduce costs and, and things like that. So with the franchising, I did it right out of school. With Red Mango, I ended up selling the business. And same thing with Great Clips after I operated it for a few years. Um, and I, you know, I sold those businesses when I started realizing quickly that the opportunity to Optimark was much larger than I initially anticipated. Let's just talk about Red Mango. Can you give us any specific stories on like what you learned or didn't learn there? Because that was kind of your first job. And did you get money from your parents or whatever to open the first franchise? In terms of the financing, I actually was DJing when I was in college. So I was able to save up quite a bit of money doing that. And then obviously, I, I did get some help from my parents as well on that first one. And what I learned from that is as much as you love a brand, and you like a product, the distribution of that product and how you look at your cost of goods sold specific to, let's say in this case, frozen yogurt, whether it's the cup, the spoon, the yogurt itself, the fruits that go in it, uh, frankly speaking, what, what I had been informed versus what the reality was, my actual true cost, there was a clear gap there. And if you look, you know, a lot of these frozen yogurt players have, you know, they've had a pretty challenging time over the last few years in particular, but it's a trend-setting business. I learned quickly that if I want to invest in these trending businesses, it's a gamble. Um, and especially if I don't have my facts straight with a 
not uh, what I would say is a seasoned franchise uh, franchisor in this case, uh, which I think Red Mango, like, you know, they just did not have their act together in terms of understanding what was best for long-term stability versus just trying to get 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 as many franchises sold and worrying about their income versus the profits for their franchisees. And so naturally, while I was learning that, you know, I had some great years with the business and then towards the end of it, it was getting really challenging. Luckily, I was fortunate to take money that I'd earned from that business and start allocating it into Great Clips. It's great Clips is very opposite to, to that of Red Mango. It wasn't a food business. It was like a services business for giving haircuts. There's no recession that's going to stop someone from getting haircuts. So I thought, hey, you know, there's no seasonality here in yogurt. My, my food costs were off. My seasonality was there, which was impacting my cash flow. So, I, you know, it was a very difficult business to run. With haircuts, no seasonality or not as much, um, and it's consistent. And, it, you know, Great Clips works at a lower price point. So that's kind of where I moved into that. Can you talk to us about what you were learning? I think it's pretty interesting to jump out in two different small businesses like this that are franchisees, you know? One thing I quickly learned was Great Clips. They've done a phenomenal job of understanding their metrics. So a lot of the KPIs they had for reporting were in tune. So at Red Mango, I was literally just given product and I had to kind of run everything end to end. So, you know, running a food business is very difficult because maintaining those food costs, you have to be very, very on top of monitoring each and every penny that's coming in and going out because any shift of even a three, four, let's say 5% could be the difference between being successful or not in a food business. In, In Great Clips though, it was all about customer count, delivering consistent quality service. My challenge with that business, however, is you know, a hairstylist isn't uh, necessarily a you know bachelor's degree at Babson College, for example, right? So the type of people that I'm dealing with and the kind of the, the lifestyle of, of a traditional hairstylist, very different than, than a typical, you know, stable white collar type job. Yeah. Could you say that for both of those? I mean, because that's what I would think as if you're at Red Mango too, that maybe you're hiring a lot of like high schoolers or 18 year olds that people don't think about that when you're first, you know, hiring. And then I think that was a great point. You're talking about food costs because you don't think about that as far as if that's the difference between you making a profit and not. So could you just talk to us about like managing those type of people? Yeah. So it's like the franchise. Particularly, let's say in this case, the franchise is saying, you know, there's this thing called a franchise disclosure document for those people that don't know what, you know, franchising is. Typically, any registered franchise, they have this thing called an FTD. In the FTD, they're supposed to state their generalized average costs, right? And those could be, you know, those could or could not be accurate. There's certain claims that need to be made. Again, this was not a seasoned franchise with good operators. And because of that, they made these claims that these food costs were X. And they were really why. And and that ended up being a major factor as to why the business didn't go well. The location was great in, in terms of we we're right next to uh, Northeastern University. We actually had a lot of college students predominantly running the stores. And they did a great job because these students, they were willing to have a secondary job to work on. They had some additional you know income to play around with. So they were good staff. They were stable. But my general is- issue was... I just wasn't satisfied with what what was going on with that business in terms of my long-term stability, given the seasonality of the business. And so when you're transitioning and did Great Clips, so you first did you buy one franchise? It looks like you might expand it to a few. And can you tell us about that transition of like looking at multiple locations? Sure. Yeah. So I signed a multi-unit deal where I tried to open up a number of stores as you know within a set period of time. So I started with one. We ended up um, in a in you know in a town. Uh, called Needham, Massachusetts. So it's a you know uh, higher income demographic town that has a nice mixed community of both uh, families and young professionals. So that was the first location we opened up, which was on a, on a main street, but it wasn't necessarily a shopping center. Then the next one, I ended up opening up in another town, 
about 40 minutes away that was in a much larger shopping center that was anchored by a grocery store. So that one had driven a lot more traffic. Of course, the rent was a little bit higher, but the economics were uh, were favorable in that case. So again, we continued to operate. We opened two more. And then again, the business was running. And while that was running, I quickly realized with Red Mango, I'd, you know, I'd be better off kind of just cutting my losses and selling the company. So we ended up selling that business at a loss. Um, however, with Great Clips, things were running well. The problem was is that uh, while Great Clips was running, I also had at that time started Optimark as well. And very quickly, I realized like where my t- time allocation was going because Either I was dealing with a hairstylist complaining about a specific problem in the salon. And meanwhile, I have another client, you know, that's potentially ordering print at a much larger volume. So I quickly started realizing where where the big picture was and that that's where kind of the light switch went off with Optimark. Was there a certain instance where you realized you had to do that? I mean, were you getting just too strung out all the time? And can you tell us about like realizing, making that realization? Yeah, I think as an entrepreneur, it's difficult to hone things in because your eyes are looking at multiple things. I ended up hiring a district manager to operate all four stores. But still, what was happening was my time was still being deviated elsewhere. I, I came to a point where I wanted to change. You know, I wanted to move from Boston to New York and the stores were running fine. So there was absolutely nothing wrong with them. But my thirst for knowledge and kind of getting getting myself in a situation where I could get out of Massachusetts would be would have been absolutely necessary if I wanted to operate those stores. During that timeline, I kind of like was looking at how things were running and operating and we continued to keep growing the Optimark business at a much faster rate than Great Clips. And so I just decided at some point, if I can get a good sale price, it's, you know, the franchising business just was not for me. And I realized that, you know, with, with this one where I knew I was doing well with the with the salons, and since Great Clips was a much more structured franchise, there's a lot more franchisees interested in wanting to buy and open uh, more of these salons. So the general demand of acquiring one of these franchises was a lot higher. So I thought, you know, why not? Let's take the risk and, uh, you know, and sell this. We sold it at a very reasonable profit. And can you tell us about how you sold it and the process you have to go through when you're like selling a franchise? Yeah. So in this case, Great Clips, they have over 2000 plus salons in the entire country. So what they do is they had a co-op in Massachusetts where this co-op uh, had all of the franchisees that kind of came together and created a union of sorts and discussed problems and uh, areas of improvement for the business. So we had these co-op meetings, you know, every month we met there and then they keep the franchisees very close knit. And that was definitely something I was I wasn't getting with the uh, with the other franchise. That's where I ended up meeting people telling them, hey, look, you know, I have four stores already operating cash flow positive. Are you interested in potentially uh, investing or buying these stores? And then from there, obviously, the negotiation process started. We hired an attorney. Uh, we went through kind of going through uh, evaluating the price point. The good thing is with this franchise, they also had a general team that made valuation assessments as well to determine what price the franchise could be sold for. So instead of wasting a lot of money in, in advisory work there, the franchise had enough infrastructure to help on that as well. So, you know, I don't have anything negative to say. It's just the right place at the right time. So safe to say you're not going to get back in the frozen yogurt business? Yeah, that and frankly, the franchising business as well, because I feel like my strong suit is in building brands um, and being able to execute on those brands rather than following set system. Yeah, let's transition to more like what you do today now. So were you working on Optimark basically at the same time as Great Clips? And then and then can you tell us after you finally sold the Great Clips, when you started making the transition as far as to more digital, like you were saying? Yeah. So think about it like this. You have a brick and mortar shop. That's a traditional print shop. So right. think about like a FedEx Kinko's type location, right? Mm-hmm. So you're running a FedEx Kinko's type model where, you know, customers come in, they expect to get things done pretty quickly. 
However, the type of work that a FedEx Kinkos might do might not be the, the same as, let's say, a, a magazine that a major, you know, a major manufacturer needs to publish, let's say, 40,000 impressions of. So I wanted to study and I had this uh, just thirst of understanding, figuring out what it is in the printing business that's justified it's a $70 billion industry. And I quickly realized that a lot of the people in the industry weren't necessarily the most educated people. You know, they were very focused on, on what they produced in terms of a manufacturing perspective rather than, you know, focusing on where the bottlenecks were in the business. Uh, technology was lacking there. And so I could see my parents were doing everything end to end in terms of delivering the product. They went out doing sales. They had obviously they had a handful of employees helping them, but that they're doing the sales, they're producing the work. They have to make sure quality control check is there, invoicing, billing, accounting, delivery, everything. So uh, you know, these these typical brick and mortar print shops hit a plateau at some point where the revenue is pretty stabilized. If you're growing at, let's say, 10, 12 percent, uh, that's pretty good. And so I wanted to be able to kind of get something that had explosive growth. And so while I understood all the dynamics of the traditional brick and mortar print shop, you know, I, I started essentially becoming a print broker. And as I started to broker, I realized that, again, as a broker, I'm going to hit a limited capacity because I can only handle so many accounts because these clients are pretty demanding. So they need to be serviced. They need to have good customer service. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the sales cycle has a bunch of steps involved in it. And so in order to pay a, a dollar to, to someone to manage those steps, at that point, I realized that if I can pay a rupee, there's a big, big advantage in terms of increasing my bottom line. And so in a, in a year, I took, for example, the business from, let's say, $50,000 to 450000 Then, Then again, the year after that, we doubled. We, you know, we kind of quadrupled. So we've had explosive growth and in, in a very short period of time, which has essentially proven out that the concept works. And, and that's kind of now where we are in terms of looking towards the future, which is where we're reinvesting in you know, more and more technology as well as uh, outsourced automation to, to grow the company. Can we, can we just slow it down to what you saw your parents doing? Versus what you, what you, when you first started it there, what you thought needed to be done. Give us a couple of examples of what you saw that gave you that extra revenue boost. Yeah. So for example, I, what I saw them doing was they were servicing their existing clients. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. They're producing print jobs. They were taking care of customer service, orders, accounting. You know, you go out there to these small businesses, they always need something to print. And you think about it, you know, there's a, it's a pretty big market, um, as I mentioned. And so. When a request comes in, we need to be able to intake the order, do what's called an estimating through an estimating software to prep out. Let's say if you need a set of 500 business cards, what is it going to cost based on the paper, the stock, the size, the weight? When you're making an estimate in printing, you need to be able to have a software to help you uh, essentially create the estimate. And then from there, once a customer, let's say, awards you a job, you then need to obviously move it into the, the pipeline of a pre-press and then moving it into essentially production and then finishing. And then from finishing, once it's done, there's a, Q, a QC process, and then you should be able to then deliver the job. What I was seeing them do, which I realized quickly was they were spending too much time on essentially uh, a limited number of transactions where I could easily outsource that work to a third-party printer or a wholesale manufacturer and be able to increase my capacity and not actually have to manufacture the job in-house. So I quickly started realizing that I'll, I'll bring in as much as I can in-house, but I'm going to start monetizing as much of the work I, I can that could potentially be, we call a buyout, essentially an order that we're sourcing somewhere else. That business is where I realized that there's 
Only one thing stopping me from growing is my thirst for products and, and the knowledge of products and being able to know what products clients demand. Basically, the first thing that you saw is a, instead of your parents printing everything or if they had an employee, was that for you just to outsource it? Was that the number one thing? Yeah, a combination of outsourcing a job as well as slowly understanding what my, my operating costs were. Instead of having someone on the floor that's costing me, for example, $20 an hour, by obviously I'm Indian born, so I have contacts and I had a network out in India. I was fortunate to be able to get myself in touch with a small team to start that I, I put together and, and had that were essentially filling my orders that I was selling to clients. So I was teaching them each step of the process end to end while I was going out and, and handling all of the sales. Let's pretend I'm a new client. I think this is important. Just pretend I'm a new client and I'm calling you what used to happen versus what happens now when, when you taught the people that you've outsourced to. Got it. So what used to happen was, let's say I am a doctor's office. The doctor's office calls you and says, hey, look, I need to get 500 flyers uh, printed for some notice of some sort of immunization shot that needs to be taken. So we get an order for this item. And so what used to happen was somebody either picked up the phone believe it or not, faxed an order or sent an email in which they said, I need 500 of these flyers. Then from there, we have to then go in, generate a quote manually, uh, prepare it on an estimating software, prep the quote, convert it to a PDF, move that PDF into an email, script an email and send it back to the client. Then of course, we waited for the client to respond, let us know the job was there. Then from there, once the response came in, we had to manually then move that order into a production cycle, print out what's called a work order. Then from there, we printed a work order. We had to then start producing the job and sending it out. What happens now is I've been able to integrate complex APIs. And if you don't know what an API is, essentially, it's like a switch that gives you access to information. And so I integrated a bunch of manufacturers onto this technology platform where if they needed to have that form, they'd log into their custom branded website. They'd find the form. They'd click 250, 500, 1,000, they'd hit submit and the order would automatically from end to end be transferred within the, the, you know, the, the production pipeline. So I eliminated so many bottlenecks of back and forth by allowing the business owner without having to pick up the phone, send a fax, call someone, just go in there and autonomously just place their order, which ended up saving me quite a bit of time. And that really what a show that there's a, you know, there's a big gap here. Basically, you're saying by doing that, that's what's led to the explosive growth? Correct. I think that coupled with the ability that I have the, you know, a, the fortunate team, both in the U.S. and overseas that were supporting me and keeping my operating costs low. So my operating costs in a traditional brick and mortar business, which I realized with Great Clips and with Red Mango are high rent, high payroll, um, high insurance, high overhead. Whereas with this, I know where I need to source to a wholesale manufacturer. I have a technology a tool that's making life easier. Well, let's talk about how did you know to do that with the APIs that you're talking about and be able to make things efficient? It seems like that's kind of a different skill set of thinking than when you had the brick and mortar stuff. Completely agreed. So I said like with the brick and mortar stuff, just the thirst for growth and excellence was something where I, I've always been passionate about building something innovative or doing something outside the box. I immediately knew that 70% of this business after studying it a little bit is over 55 years old. And, and assuming that there was a lot of challenges in terms of computer literacy and the buyers traditionally for print are usually people that are in the ages of 25 to let's say 35 years old, which are like marketing managers. So people in terms of a buying perspective always wanted to have tech to make their process easier. 
But for whatever reason, there were so many bottlenecks in the printing business that didn't allow them to do that. And there was a ton of manufacturers at volume that were able to produce these jobs, but they just didn't make the process as easy uh, for the user. So I started studying. Obviously, my experience and understanding at Babson gave me access to meet with other people that were building out uh, technology systems. And so I, I then made that decision that, you know, as we grow as a company, we want to continue to enhance our technology. And, you know, that's when I started studying SaaS and looking at companies like, for example, like Netflix, where their traditional model was to ship a DVD, take a DVD, ship it. What did they do? They were giving no late fees, no, you know, uh, number of options. They were flexible. But as, for example, Netflix was a, was just a logistics business, at some point the switch turned on for them that they needed to start doing, let's say, video streaming. Likewise, in printing right now, there's nothing that, that really is innovative except for you have Vista Print where you can go direct online and buy but necessarily the customer experience for a business is very different because businesses don't just need a business card. They might need a complex box uh, or some labeling or something very, very you know, custom that's for their specific requirement. And with that, you know, there, weren't, there are not a lot of players out there that are able to provide a full range of products. And so I started studying, analyzing, uh, trying to reach out to all, as many people as I could within the printing industry to see what the business was you know, all about. I started traveling and meeting with clients. And from there, I started taking on kind of a consultative approach to using my knowledge of knowing where to source jobs and then applying them to specific companies. And I started with you know, primarily startups because that's what I love. You know, I love entrepreneurship. I love working with companies. So I started going after venture-backed startups as, as my core clients and letting them know that as they have to be agile and grow and quickly you know, build systems for long-term growth, this could be something that could work well for them. Right. And it, did you have that technology already ready before you started talking to those people? And then let's just talk about, I mean, how much does something like that cost? How much time did it take to implement this new system and the transition that the people before to the people who work now? Yeah. So in the printing industry, there's a lot of software choices out there, which are specifically called web to print software. There's a lot of them out there on the street and that are available for a very inexpensive price point where you can just add and edit tweaks and, and make it work. So instead of rebuilding everything and investing a ton of money up front, I was able to get uh, basically an online software that could be utilized for any print broker or manufacturer. And then I had a designer just put some nice front end edits to it to make the, you know, the user experience look up to speed with kind of today's look and feel. And if you talk to a lot of other printers, you'll see that th there's not a lot of people that for whatever reason have that because they're focused primarily on their manufacturing. So I started with this basic tool from a company that provides web to print software. I added some layers to the technology and started from there. What was the size of the company, Optimark, like right when you started, like employees-wise and everything and how many locations and how you slowly expanded? And then I want to talk about you finally hiring and training the people overseas, how you were able to do that. Yeah. So in 2011, essentially, we had one location, which was the brick and mortar shop that my parents had. And in order to grow the company, I needed to bring in revenue. So the only place I had at that point was where the brokerage business was, where I was bringing that in. As essentially that brokerage business started picking up, the next step for me was actually not to open another brick and mortar shop. It was to start spending money on opening up my offices in India. So I took the one brick and mortar shop who was already operating cash flow positive. I then started brokering jobs myself. I quickly realized I couldn't keep up with the orders by myself. So instead of hiring more more staff at, for example, the, the production facility that uh, we had, which was a brick and mortar shop, I, I ended up uh, linking up with a partner in India 
that was helping me establish getting some of this work done through, through one of their offices. And so how, how did you do that? And what were they doing in India? Can you just tell us about the training, um, how you had to go through that transition? Because it seems like it might be, well, at least you had some background in India, but going over there and training people, um, it seems like a different type of story. Yeah, I mean, I had to do everything remotely. I mean, we're using Skype or using just, you know, any sort of general technology. I, I had a contact that I had, uh, that I was in college with and he and I had linked up and he had access to back office and, and some very basic infrastructure to start where I could you know have a small team. And so we started with one operations manager. From there, we ended up bringing on some additional employees to help out. And that's kind of how that started. I trained them all remotely. We had your regular calls. We walked them through our processes and we essentially built the business to make sure it could run in a remote manner. And obviously, it just took time and energy to start training these people based on what we knew about basics of the business. Right. And can you tell us how you train them and what's worked well, what hasn't? Because for someone who's never made that type of hire, they might think, you know, how's this guy able to train them virtually? Yeah, that's a great question. So in terms of a training process, what we did was we, we, we essentially just walked them through each stage of the life cycle of an order. So when a request came in, you know, I kept them up to speed as to what was what the intake process was. Then from there, we then focused on understanding how to be able to use our estimating software to generate proposals, quotes, et cetera. And then from there, we then you know made sure that they were well-versed in practicing that. So for example, if a sale came in, usually I was making the estimate. I trained them on how to make a general estimate. Then from there, we went to the next step of after the estimate's done, we now need to contact vendors or whomever we're sourcing the job to, to go ahead and produce the work. So we kind of walked them through soup to nuts, everything end to end, which allowed us um, to give, you know, to really determine where each one of these employees was best suited to be able to add value in terms of the pipeline of the process. So it took a lot of time, but we didn't bring on too many people quickly. We had a very small team of two, three guys that were handling, you know, one was doing accounting, one was essentially handling customer support and service, and one was handling processing of those orders. So initially we started with one guy, then we brought on another, another. And meanwhile, I put a lot of my energy on just focusing on sales, which is obviously what was driving the, the growth. And so what's been the biggest challenge for you and growing the business and in, in general through this life, you know, growing one brick and mortar store to multiple ones now? So the brick and mortar stores actually haven't been that much of a, you know, they haven't been the biggest challenge for me. The operations in India for sure have been the biggest challenge. And I think the biggest mistake that I made in reflecting back at this now where I'm at now is that I didn't set the appropriate culture in the office from day one. I kind of had a dependency on one or two people to be able to make the decisions for the business. And that works for a certain while. But then as you grow, uh, if you don't set the right culture in terms of you know what type of thinking we, we want our employees to have, what their involvement is within the organization, how are they incentivized, uh, something from as simple as a break policy to how many meals are we comping them each week. These are the types of challenges in India that culturally I just haven't been aware of. Hence, you can see I'm here now, right? Because I still got to continue working on this process. And culture was the biggest mistake. I set the wrong culture from day one. And I didn't have that mindset of thinking where I thought I could just do every single thing by myself. As you can see, I was I kept mentioning that I did this or I did that. And it's right from the get-go, of course, you need to know the full business inside out. So I would never tell an entrepreneur just to take an easy step out. Like as a, as a founder, as a CEO, you should know soup to nuts, again, everything that's going on with the business. At the same token, you need to be able to effectively do that through setting the right culture. And without that, that's where I think there's a lot of challenges that can continue to keep negatively affecting the future growth of your business, especially as you need to be agile. So like Netflix, for example, was processing uh, DVD orders. 
we've been processing standard business card orders or whatever on a manual process. Now, you know, our infrastructure is adjusted a lot into technology. And so the culture needs to be a whole different ballgame than what it was before, right? Because you know, if I have one dummy that's processing an order, then what happens is I end up hiring a lot of dummies. And frankly speaking, that's kind of what, what position I put myself in now in that I'm looking to, again, continue the same growth acceleration that we've had. And I've realized that I could have set the standard as to what our expectations are in terms of an employee culture. And so, you know, I, I know I keep bringing up Netflix as an example, but their CEO is essentially has this thing called a culture document, which I've been analyzing and studying where he talks about freedom and responsibility and more importantly, first principle thinking where, you know, employees behaviors that they make, they impact everyone. And so I didn't follow that. And so there was some people doing certain things one way and others doing other things one way. So I, I wasn't able to set the, the standard as to what our expectation was in terms of a high-performing organization. But let's talk about the culture that you're talking about. Can you give us actual examples? Because you even talked about like lunch breaks and stuff like that you don't think about, which I don't think many entrepreneurs do at first, right? Because you're just want to, you're focusing on making a better business and you, culture is kind of, I don't know, one of the last things that I think about till you have bad culture. So can you give us examples of what was happening before versus what you're trying to implement now or what's better? Yeah. So I think what was happening before was there's a hierarchical structure where I would, you know, I would go, for example, to one of my employees. And in this case, let's say it's a management level position where I gave them enough freedom and autonomy to make decisions without, you know, essentially intervening on what they're doing. Right. I don't like to micromanage, but at the same token, obviously you want to know what's going on. So I gave my operations team in India, a handful of guys, a lot of power. And with that power, there came a lot of abuse in that. I'm being told one thing, but the reality is something else is being told to either the employee or the employee they're managing. So one person's, let's say, on, on lunch break, the other person's working. And the person that's working is getting frustrated that the person on lunch break, for example, is not putting in the same time. Monitoring that, tracking that, measuring that, evaluating that. We didn't put as much emphasis into those things because obviously being a startup, you got to be agile and grow and just get what you need to get done. And so that was getting translated into mistreatment amongst employees. It was getting translated into abusing, you know, accounting uh, authority that I'm giving to key decision makers that I have. Whereas again, I'm not in India, right? I am now, but I'm not naturally someone who's been born and brought up in India. I'm, I'm a guy from the US. So again, a dollar here goes a long way compared to what's going on, let's say in the US. So I don't know what that dollar really was worth. I'm taking word from someone else, right? And, and so with that comes power and comes abuse. And so I've seen it from cab drivers to how we're going to decorate an office to how we're going to um, set the tone for some employees that I'm I'm friends with and other employees that are just employees to looking at the way that I, I treat certain people versus other people. And India is a place where things things just happen. In India, like you could set the tone, there's a lot more flexibility as to the way things go. And with that comes a lot of responsibility. You're in the US, things are going great. And then you're finding out that the guys that you put in charge are not really doing what they're saying? Or how did you figure that out? And what was your first reaction? Essentially, what I did was I didn't have an independent, like I said, I gave too much power to certain individuals. So I then, you know, in the last years, I started assessing like what, what kind of, obviously, I'm still saving money by outsourcing. So don't get me wrong. I love outsourcing. Hence the reason I'm here and I'm doing more and more of it. But I realized that you can't give control to just one person. You need to share the wealth in terms of if I'm going to have someone making a key decision about, uh, you know, let's setting up infrastructure in an office, 
I'm going to need to get an independent auditor to verify those expenses that understands that exact market. And in India, the markets are all over the place. Just like there's New York, San Francisco, um, let's say those are what we call uh, A cities or tier one cities. Uh, in India, there's a big range. So if you're in Bombay, Delhi, Pune, you're in Bangalore, you could have some very much higher infrastructure costs. So I was interested in figuring out where I could go to a place, had a great employment, a good opportunity. Um, and the city that we built our infrastructure in is called Jaipur. It's in Rajasthan, India. And that, um, you know, that area, it has a lot of talent, strong education, good ability to speak English, et cetera. It just doesn't have as much competition as those, obviously, those tier one cities. But I was going to talk about, I mean, specifically the managers that you put in charge, you found out were kind of abusing power. Like, how did you figure that out? Like specifically and like what and what happened? What was the story behind it? I ended up getting in touch with another alternative accounting firm. I had asked them to do a, essentially an independent audit. And when they had done that, they, they realized that there's a bunch of expenses that just did not, you know, that just didn't add up. Obviously, I'm not going to sit here and start questioning all my employees immediately, but I started realizing that there were certain employees that started raising red flags as to the way that they were being treated. And from there, my, you know, I naturally, one year after another, I've, I've seen the growth of the company, but I put that in the hands of only, like I said, a few people. When you start building a kind of a small business into an actual organization, like a company with, let's say, 25 plus employees, it's a big shift, right? Going from one to two employees or one to five employees. Once you start getting up to 15 to 25 employees, you need to start setting some clear policies. And that just wasn't happening. So when, when this independent auditor came in, he raised a red flag. And from there, I started kind of understanding that there's potential issues that are going on. And obviously, once you kind of dig into the hood, you can start finding more and more issues. And that's why I'm, I, you know, I've been really emphasizing culture because I learned my lesson like these last three or four years, even though we've been doing great. We've been in a great financial position. We're cash flow positive. Company doesn't have any debt. That still doesn't mean that if I have a dollar, I need to spend a dollar, right? So I want to pay the actual, you know, true cost of what they should be in a market. And so being again an entrepreneur in the United States that doesn't even speak in in Hindi um, or native tongue here, I needed guys on the ground that can really do the research and homework and analyze that. And fortunately, because of the growth of my existing company, I started investing as an angel investor in other startups and, and building out, you know, and helping other entrepreneurs and in, in, in their need to start getting more and more requirements overseas in terms of a back office perspective. And the more I started doing that, uh, the better I started realizing that there were certain challenges. How much time do you spend over there now? And, and what's it like comparatively to what you were doing a couple of years ago? Like what's your day to day and role now? I come here once a quarter. It's a great time. The only you know big difference is I have to work essentially a night shift, uh, which is the U.S. hours. So it's not cut out for everyone. You know, if you're lazy, this is not a good fit for you. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of sucks. And my day to day before was literally just taking care of the clients, servicing each and every account that was coming in. And in the last two years, I've right, really tried to focus on how can I train the salespeople to do their job. And allow me to start building out more and more infrastructure for both operations as well as technology. So now my day-to-day is I work with our CTO and building product, understanding how we can continue to make the printing process um, as easy as possible for a reseller to have the, the most seamless buying experience. And then, you know, I work with our operations team in multiple departments now rather than through one point of contact. I actually, like right now, we don't have an operations officer. And the reason I don't want to define it operations officer is because if I give that title, for example, in the US, my team's all in-house. That's all fine and dandy. 
If I do that in India, for example, C-level words don't need to be dropped where you could have a team leader and the team leader is responsible, for example, to essentially executing the voice of, let's say, the CEO, CTO, CFO to all of the other respective departments. So we've started departmentalizing things and, and having essentially heads of departments report back to you know these team leaders. Okay, so so that's been the main transition is tr- trying to have quote unquote like heads of departments instead of where you gave them C level titles before, where there's almost that control where they're over everybody. Exactly. And closing up, what's the best words of wisdom you might have for you know someone who wanting to start their business or just starting and you know, kind of struggling at first, what what would you suggest to them? I would say like, there's nothing better than just doing. Everyone's going to criticize. Everyone's going to have their comments. Everyone's going to have their opinion. But if you're strong and bullish on your belief of the product and your ability to get things done, just right from the get-go, if you really think this business is going to blow up, set the culture from day one. Because if you set the tone in terms of your expectations of what as an organization we value, what type of freedom and responsibility we're going to give to people, you know, how much are you going to pay them? How are we going to incentivize them? And what type of metrics are we going to have in terms of their evaluations? Don't ignore that from day one, because if you set that standard, you know, earlier, then you won't be in situations like kind of like where I am right now, where I'm adjusting my business to accommodate the needs of the future. And I'm prepared to learn from these mistakes. And that's how entrepreneurs learn. So you got to try, test, make mistakes, essentially step back up again and do it again. And every time you have an iteration or adjustment, uh, you learn from it. And that's the only way you're going to be able to accelerate your growth. And um, we brought this up when we were talking before, but I was talking about your picture on Skype. I think it was important too. I mean, you kind of emphasized there. It says stop talking, start building or selling. It's important to do something at the end of the day. Because if you wouldn't have even done anything, you would have learned from this, right? Yeah. And so you got to just kind of phase out the fluff. If you're a true entrepreneur, like get to work and let's get going, right? That, that's the mindset everyone needs to have. Um, and focus on, on getting, you know, getting the job done and doing it in a way where you use, you know, principles, ethics, you have a set culture, you are very clear and, and everyone in the organization is aligned with exactly what you're looking to do. Well, like I said, well, thank you for spending some time with us and sharing your story. If someone wanted to reach out, what's the best way for them to contact you? You can just shoot me an email anytime. Well, thank you again for coming on and like I said, I'm sharing your story. So you enjoyed this episode, right? Yeah, I see you're shaking your head up and down. Well, the only way we can keep pumping out these awesome episodes is by increasing our download numbers. And how we do that is by making sure you and your friends are subscribed to the podcast. So if you have a minute, make sure in your podcast player that you have the subscribe button turned on for Millionaire Interviews. And if you know someone else who wants to listen to the podcast or think they might like it, we'd be more than happy for you to share it with them as well. So thanks again for tuning in and see you next episode. Oh